My name is Jason Doldine, and I'm the host of Reaching Roots, a podcast with a goal to make life easier for parents and families so they can reach further. We're talking to people who inspire us with their journey, tell us about the problems they are solving, and provide us insight that helps us and our children learn and grow. Meg Jay is a clinical psychologist and an associate professor of human development at the University of Virginia. She is the author of Supernormal, an inspirational account of how we develop resilience in the face of childhood adversity, and also The Defining Decade, a provocative book that shows us why our 20s are a critical time of our life and how we can make the most of it. In Supernormal, Meg tells the stories of people who grew up with significant childhood adversity, the loss of a parent, through death or divorce, domestic violence, alcoholic parents, sexual abuse, and bullying at home or school. Studies indicate that 75% of the population is affected by one or more of these before they are 20. Meg says, these people are not abnormal, but beyond normal, exceptional, extraordinary, and heroic in many ways. Supernormal points out the resourcefulness kids develop when they're surrounded by chaos and trauma. Through real stories, Meg provides examples, like the girl who learned to de-escalate a fight in which her drunk dad is beating up her brothers, the boy who comforts his mom about his dad abandoning them, the girl who excels in school to mask poverty and parental drug addiction. Kids who grow up with adversity often also grow up with the resourcefulness and resilience to make things go right during adulthood. Meg says, in the long run, what goes right matters more than what goes wrong. In her book, Meg does not focus on children being damaged, but instead on them being strong and courageous. She does not focus on what happened to them, but on how they overcame what happened. In this episode, we talk to Meg about what are some of the ingredients that help our children develop resilience and how we can help them along. Meg is also the author of The Defining Decade. She explains why the saying, 30 is the new 20, is counterproductive to 20-somethings and shows us how work, relationships, personality, identity, and the brain undergo massive change during this time. Her TED Talk, Why 30 is Not the New 20, is among the most watched of all time. Meg's books have been translated into more than a dozen languages, and her work has appeared in the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Harvard Business Review, and on NPR and BBC. Okay, welcome, Meg. Great, thank you. It's great to be here. That's yeah, uh, wonderful to have you here. So, Meg, why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, just your background and um, how you uh, started to actually get into um, thinking about um, the topics that you covered in Supernormal? Yeah, both of my books were written about, or written and sort of came about in the same way. So, I'm a clinical psychologist, so I see clients one at a time behind closed doors. I also teach, uh, I taught at UC Berkeley and now at University of Virginia. So I tend to have a lot of students as well. And both of my books um, came about because I kept hearing the same things from clients, clients coming to me behind closed doors or in the behind closed doors of my office hours and saying, I have this problem and I feel like I'm the only one or I have this situation and no one else here could possibly understand. And when I start to hear that again and again, 
it makes me realize that somebody needs to get these conversations out from behind closed doors where we can have them out in the open and that people can see they're not as alone as they think they are. Right, right. Yeah, I guess you began to see some patterns. Absolutely. And so usually I, you know, look around for a book I can recommend. And if I can't find one, I realize, well, I guess I'm, I'll be doing it. <laughs> so, um, so that's how it happens. But I think especially with Supernormal, you know, so I'm in Charlottesville, I'm at a University of Virginia. So I'm surrounded by extremely successful young people, you know, young adults and older adults. Um, However, you may or may not be surprised to find out that their lives are often more complicated than maybe they look from the outside or that they have a background or a childhood that you wouldn't expect given where they ended up. And I felt that for many people, that was a really alienating experience. And there was this sense of I look around at my company or I look around at my university and nobody else is, you know, fielding phone calls from home because of an alcoholic parent or a sibling who's in jail. And that's how it feels from the outside. But I know because of my job, there are actually quite a lot of people who are in these great universities or in these big companies who have backgrounds that people would be surprised by. And so I wanted the conversation yeah. to, to get out of how do people get where they are, but also how does that feel? And um, to help people see, like I said before, not only are they not alone, but they're in some really good company. Yeah, yeah. So tell us a little bit about, you know, kind of going back to sort of childhood when people are actually sort of facing these adversities. Uh, maybe talk about um, what some of those adversities are. And, you know, as a child, I mean, what am I feeling? Right. Um, well, th this is a great time to ask that question. What are those childhood adversities? So before a year ago, I would have said the 10 most common childhood adversities are, and I'll try to rattle them off without forgetting one, but we'll see. <laughs> I've done this many times, but we'll see. So um, losing a parent or a sibling to death or divorce, um, alcoholism or substance abuse in the home, um, bullying, uh, emotional, physical, or sexual abuse, living with domestic violence, um, having a parent in jail, um, poverty or neglect, and mental, did I say mental illness in a parent or a sib? I think that's the 10. So those are your 10 most common. Um, however, well, I say those were your 10 most common. I guess we could say that right now, technically speaking, the most common childhood adversity that people are dealing with is the pandemic and the associated losses. Excuse me again. Okay, so um, the 10 most common uh, childhood adversities are loss of a parent or a sibling through death or divorce, um, alcoholism or substance abuse in the home, uh, mental illness in a parent or a sib, bullying, um, physical, emotional, or sexual abuse, uh, living with domestic violence, poverty or neglect, and um, having a parent in jail, which an interesting tidbit is that that is far more common than it used to be for reasons we won't get into today, but actually one in 28 kids in the United States has an incarcerated parent. That's amazing. Um, so, um, so those are the 10 most common However, I don't know how much you want to talk about the pandemic today, but we could say that technically speaking, that is the most common 
um, childhood adversity that kid, kids are living with is that there's a lot of social isolation, you know, they're not in school, there's a lot of stress around the pandemic. And people are finding they're needing to figure out how to be resilient in the face of that. And then at the same time, the pandemic is exacerbating other childhood adversities, such as alcoholism in the home or, you know, whatever the case may be. So, um, so I think pretty soon we'll be recognizing the pandemic as probably the most common childhood adversity. Right, right. Yeah, you know, we did a podcast about um, about the pandemic and how it was impacting uh, impacting children. And, you know, we talked about sort of uh, just the concept that, you know, we were seeing actually children that, um, you know, were kind of in lower socioeconomic um, environments that tended to be more impacted um, and just didn't have the kind of resources that maybe right. you know, better, better um, or well-off parents uh, could provide for their children. Um, so obviously I think there's gonna be sort of a, a range on that front, but when you think about sort of the kind of um, uh, challenges that you actually rhymed off, I mean, those are very serious um, and you know, probably uh, cause a lot of trauma to, uh, to children. So in your research, I mean, what did you see? I mean, how are children feeling about those situations? Um, they're very serious, the, the 10 that I mentioned, uh, and very uh, common. So um, one reason I wrote uh, Supernormal the way that I did is I talk about all 10 of those. I mean, there are stories from all 10 of those. And the book is really about the meta story of what's it like to grow up with adversity and then find a way to be resilient. And that that internal story is very similar, whether the problem is a parent in jail or a mentally ill sibling. There's a similar internal process that goes on. But the reason I wanted to have all 10 in one book is that historically they've been siloed in different books and for good reason, but that ends up leaving kids, teenagers, young adults who are trying to make sense of their past feeling like they're part of a small minority and really an estimated 75% of us have grown up with at least one of those ACEs, if not more. And more and more, we're hearing about that, about how common they are, and we're hearing about how problematic that can be. So um, we can talk more about this. The short answer of why they're so problematic is that these are um, what we call chronic stressors, they create chronic strain on the brain and the body because you're chronically exposed to your stress hormones, that having a parent as an alcoholic is not a problem for one day. Um, it's probably not even a problem for one year. It probably is week after week, month after month, year after year. And so over time, when we live with chronic stressors, yeah. especially as children, our bodies and brains are flooded with stress hormones and that leaves us vulnerable to various mental and physical health problems, both in the here and now, but also in adulthood, because it sometimes it takes a while for that to build up and take effect. So that's why they're serious. Um, and it's great that more people are learning about that. I think, unfortunately, sometimes that's where the conversation ends. And so people hear about these ACEs, the adverse childhood experiences, and they think, oh, I'm sunk. I grew up with that. Right. I'm done for. Um, I'm going to be sick. I'm going to die early. I'm going to have mental health problems. And that's, and it's good that people understand the risks, but I think we're not talking enough about people who manage to um, create a better life for themselves along the way and then ameliorate some of those um, vulnerabilities. Yeah, and I love to talk about you know what you what you kind of call resourcefulness and resilience in your in your book. Um, but before we actually get there, I mean, um, 
you know, obviously, um, when kids are sort of faced with um, with this trauma, there's really a couple of ways that people can go, right? Um, they can certainly become um, resourceful and resilient, or um, they can kind of spiral downwards. Um, can you talk a little bit about sort of, um, you know, is it, is it fairly common for people to kind of, um, you know, overcome these, um, these issues? Or, you know, is there just a lot more that are kind of spiraling downwards? Um, gosh, that would be tough to answer, because I think um, resilience is a, is a long road. <laughs> and so um, I think what I hear a lot are kids who in the moment, many of whom were able to be resourceful and they sort of, you know, figured out how to work with the quote normal that they had. But over time, that can become very taxing. And so even being resilient is difficult of, you know, I've got to manage this problem in my house or my neighborhood day after day, year after year, that so it, it, you know, resilience kind of goes in and out of you depending on what you look at in a person's life and when you're looking at their life. And so, I mean, I guess the good news is, is it's not an either or people either are resilient or they're not resilient. I think that we sometimes we're able to be more resilient than other times. And that often depends on kind of what's available for us to work with. Sure. Um, and so it's interesting because I think a lot of the clients that I have had who've come to my office, you know, many of whom are in young adulthood and they're talking about these adversities for the first time. Um, and here they are having gotten themselves to college or to, um, you know, great companies or having relationships. And I'll say, wow, you know, have you ever considered yourself to be resilient? And usually they say, no, uh, because if it had, if I had been resilient, I would never have struggled or I wouldn't have a therapist. I would never have had a period of depression. And I think there's a real misunderstanding out there that resilient people never struggle. Um, as a matter of fact, they struggle is how they get through it. It is a struggle. And so, um, so it's a very long answer to the question of, I think it's tough to say, you know, whether someone is or isn't resilient you know, is a black and white answer. And often resilient people think, who, me? Um, yeah, yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, struggle is sort of the test of resilience, right? Right, that it's, it is a struggle. I mean, and, and resilient people struggle and it's just, they're just sort of maybe trying to get through it or willing to struggle or, you know, have the supports right. to even fight the good fight. So you talk about some stories in your book. Can you give us an example of um, sort of, you know, one of the childhood situations um, where, you know, someone actually sort of experienced a certain kind of trauma and then um, sort of worked towards overcoming that? Oh, my goodness. Um, there were You have a lot in there, so. Yeah, I'm trying to pick. If I were going to pick one, it's like, you know, picking a favorite child. You can't do <laughs> Um you know, I'm thinking about uh, the, uh, well, okay, I'll pick one of the ones that's my favorite because we don't talk about it enough. And this was a um, person who grew up with a mentally ill sibling. And um, so 
we usually, when we talk about childhood adversities, we often think of parents, parents who have problems, but a surprising number of my clients have grown up with siblings who had problems. And so um, this particular person, uh, her sibling had some mental health problems and could be physically abusive to both her and the, the parents or the parent in the home. And so I think at the time, she tapped into those fight or flight mechanisms of, you know, sort of being determined that her sister's problems weren't going to ruin her life. And she found ways tapping into the flight mechanism to separate herself from her sister when she needed to, to spend more time at after school programs or to be over at a neighbor's house and just, just find a way to create some healthy distance. Right. And so I would say growing up, she was, you know, really in constantly in fight or flight mode of, how can I problem solve my way out of this or my way out of the house today? Or how can I help my mom, you know, get to the grocery store without causing problems with my sister or whatever the case may be. So, you know, uh, resilient kids are usually very scrappy and resourceful and strategic. Um, and then later in life, I would say uh, that she you know, created a healthy separation from her sister, yet also became involved with some sibling groups at the, we have a local autism center. And she started to run some groups for kids whose siblings had autism. Her sister did not have autism, but she could really relate to what it's like to be sort of quote the well child. And so, you know, that she kind of felt like, a good bit of closure or resolution for her was going out and, and doing some good in the world in a way that she could uniquely understand. Well, that's great. So not only did she um, sort of navigate through the situation, but uh, was able to actually uh, get herself to a position where we could help others. Yes. And that's a very common trajectory. So, you know, having read the book, the, the central metaphor in the book, Supernormal, is the superhero. And this really came not from me, but from my clients. So many of them said that they, when they were kids, you were asking, how does this feel when, when people are kids? You know, when people are kids, they're, they're put in a position where they need to be in fight or flight all the time. And you would be really surprised by the number that have told me I identified with this particular superhero character and, you know, to kind of see myself as strong and out there able to leap over buildings and dodge bullets and solve problems. And so there is often, and I think this can be very healthy and productive, this tendency to want to go out and, um, you know, sort of be the protagonist and be the hero and go out and do some good in the world, which is really a better way to feel than that you're a victim of circumstance. Yeah, no, absolutely. So, you know, it strikes me, Meg, that when you think about sort of, or when you're talking about the 10 um, issues uh, that are adversity that people could actually face, there are some that parents can actually play a role to help their children. Um, You know, when we think about sort of death and divorce or you know, the example that just siblings, right? Mm-hmm. Siblings, right? And then there are some where parents are actually the cause, right? I mean, sure. uh, drug addiction and parent alcoholism and, uh, you know, um, God forbid, sort of, you know, uh, sexually being assaulted by parents and things like that. Can you talk to us about sort of, um, you know, in kind of the first category, how can parents help? What should they be looking for in places that they, they can help? Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, so I think the first, one of the 
quote sounds super normal and I'm sorry, I can't think right now of the person who said it, but it's, it's always stuck with me as a therapist is that it's goes something like what people most want is to understand and feel understood. And so I think we have to first start by helping our kids understand that a, there is a problem or, or what the problem is. So many of my clients, by the time they get to my office, no one ever called what was going on in the house alcoholism, or no one ever said, you know, I know divorce is really common and it, you know, we all agree it was the best thing for our family, but I know it could be really hard. And I know it was a sad time for you. And, um, or, Hey, I know you love your brother or your sister, but I also know that them having problems has made your life quite difficult. So I think we just start by helping kids understand the problem, which means giving it a name if there is a name um, and helping them feel understood of, I see you, I can help you put this into words. There's tons of research around how calming it is for our brains and our bodies, how organizing it is to be able to call something by a name and give it a category and then it's yeah. so okay i get it i understand this this is something i can work with um so i think that's always the place to start is by naming the problem and letting the child know they're not alone with it yeah. um and you know if i spend another few seconds on that that one of the biggest predictors of how someone fares during and after an adversity is not the severity of the event, of the event, which is very difficult to quantify, but still not the severity, but it's how alone they felt with the problem, both during and after. And so um, not going through something alone and feeling like somebody understood and cared and talked to you about it and let you cry about it or be angry about it. Um, yeah. It does a lot more good than maybe you would imagine. And, often for kids that didn't happen for that's the role I end up playing um, in therapy years later was that there was this unnamed unprocessed problem and that work needs to get done so usually you start there god I mean when you say unnamed unprocessed I mean to me it feels like um, no one accepted that there was a problem right that it's it's you know the classic elephant in the room Right. saying. And, um, you know, I think we want, I mean, I have two kids, I get it. You know, I think we want to imagine that, uh, you know, that maybe this isn't a, something, isn't a problem that a sibling isn't a problem or a parent isn't a problem or a divorce isn't a problem. Um, but you know, that, that may not be matching the experience that the child is having. And that, you know, but we think if we don't talk about something or we don't name something, we won't make it really big. Right. Um, but actually it already is probably big for yeah. your child and you're just making it like they leaving it to where they can't really process it. That's right. I mean, I feel like, you know, um, not accepting it is really, um, uh, a result of sort of this fear that we have because once we accept it now we're gonna to have to talk about it and, and we don't really we, we don't really know what to say about it or mm -hmm. can't figure out what to do next so 
right what would your advice be in terms of you know okay we can accept it but like the next step right after now that, what <laughs> now what right <laughs> well i mean and I, i'm really not saying this to plug my book but that was actually part of what i was trying to do in supernormal is yeah. like i said before i take up these 10 adversities because they're all really common and i go through the details of what are the stats how common is alcoholism in the home okay. what are the issues around it you know, how do parents tend to react? How do kids tend to react? And in what ways does this go well? And in what ways does this go sideways? And so, I mean, honestly, I would start by um, reading, if you're a reader, um, whether it's my book or other books, um, or uh, listening to a podcast or talking to your doctor, you know, getting some consultation of, I mean, these are problems that have been faced before, you know, unfortunately millions of families have gone through problems like this before and we can we can figure out how to get through this right. and i think role modeling that for your kids and we've talked about this a little bit with the pandemic is that it's not going to do anyone any good to say oh this oh this year it's fine it's going to pass it's not such a big deal as much as saying you know we're going to get through this let's figure out how we're going to do this and um to sort of let the, the partner, the parent and the kids be partners in resilience of how are we going to deal with the fact that we have problem X in our family. Right. Just take it up from a problem solving perspective, not from a, if nobody talks about it, it's not going to hurt my child. Yeah, no, that's good advice. And, and I guess what you're saying is that in your book, you actually um, provide some other sort of practical ways of going about it. Yes. And just, and I think of explaining and, and talking about, you know, what are these problems called? How common are they? Right. Um, so that people That's can see it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we talk about that first category, right? Which is kind of like parents can actually do something about it. Um, what about when parents are the problem? Um, right. What should children really be doing in those situations? Because that's a, that's a far scarier place to be. Yeah, it's interesting. And, and, you know, so for the parents who are out there listening, they may be not the parents who are the problem. They may be the parents who live next door to the parents who are the problem or the siblings of the parents who are the problem. So, or one of the, or one of the parents, right? Or one of the other parents. Absolutely. So um, it's interesting. I actually, when I first started uh, doing clinical work, thought that I would probably want to work with kids. And I actually didn't end up specializing in kids. I really work more with young adults, which might beg the question of why did I write about childhood adversity? But I wrote about it because most kids don't deal with their childhood adversities until they're young adults. That's when they first find someone to talk to about it. That's when they first say, you know what? I think, I think my sibling had a mental illness that we never acknowledged. And so, um, and one of the reasons that I didn't, I think, work with young kids is that when you have parents who are the problem, there's not a lot you can get done. It's very difficult because they're not able or interested to do the work there. However, um, there are many good helping people in, you know, in a kid's orbit that can make a big difference. So what often ends up happening is kids who are able to be resilient are able to tap into the neighbor next door, the best friend where they, you know, they go every weekend or, 
the aunt or the uncle who really cares or grandma's house, or they spend more time at after school programs. And, um, you know, in some cases, maybe people in the child's orbit are able to get involved and have there be an intervention and like real structural change in the home. I'm, I'm sorry to say that is pretty rare. And rather what happens, and I'm just being honest about this, rather what happens is, is that these helping people in a kid's life, they help them just get through, just, just make it, you know, they help them get to where they're 18 and they go off to college and they can say, whew, I can finally live somewhere where plates aren't flying across the kitchen at dinner time. And so I wouldn't underestimate the power of the next door neighbor, the teacher who cares, the best friend's house, the, the safe havens that people find, that you would be very surprised um, how much good that does and how many people have sat in my office and said, oh, you know, I used to go to my neighbor's house and I don't know if they knew what was going on, but she always let me come in and never asked any questions and let me stay and watch TV as long as I wanted. And that might not sound like enough, but sometimes that is all people can do. And you would be surprised about how, how much good it does. Yeah. I mean, I guess, you know, to be in a safe place that's not under constant stress um, could do wonders. Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, I would say if you're that person, just being there, if you're able to know about the problem and talk about the problem, like we would like the parent to do, that would be great. But sometimes just existing as a healthy, happy person in someone's life gives them something to aspire to and to imagine that they could be, um, can be incredibly important. Yeah, some of the model. Yeah. So as you were kind of talking about young adults, um, a thought came to me and, uh, you know, I love this concept of supernormal and kids that are resilient and resourceful, but I've certainly come across people that will look back at their childhood adversity and, you know, I don't want to say use it as an excuse, but it sounds like an excuse. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. You have anything to say about that in terms of, um, uh, you know, how we should be sort of um, helping you know, those young adults kind of navigate that? Right. Yeah. Yeah. A couple things. Well, one reason I chose Supernormal for the title of the book is it has, if you look it up in the dictionary, it has kind of a double meaning. It, it's one is, you know, better than average or expectable. And I liked that it, it flipped the narrative from that people who grow up with adversities are abnormal than people who grow up with adversities can sort of beat expectations and you know turn out better than they or other people would expect. The other part about the definition is that it's also something like a phenomenon that's difficult to explain. And there's definitely, yeah. we can do research all day and we've been doing it for decades on resilience and everybody says, what's the secret ingredient? What's the one thing? What's the key? And it's so highly variable why you have two people with similar adversities turn out so differently or why more often than not, you have two siblings in the same house with the same stressors. Obviously they're different humans yep. go different ways. And my favorite way to just kind of put the puzzle out there. I put the a parable, I put it in the book, but I'll share it with your audience is a minister is in his office talking to two adult males to brothers and they grew up with uh, an alcoholic abusive father and one of the men is he's sober he's a great dad a great worker upstanding you know 
community member and the other one is also an abusive alcoholic and so um the minister asked both brothers you know how do you think you came to be who you are and the both brothers gave the same answer and they said well given how i grew up how could i not and what is so interesting and of course these are two different humans with different genes and some different experiences to a, to a certain extent but what you do often find with people who kind of find a road to resilience and again there are many and people who don't is for the people who do there's a real determination to do life differently to turn out differently than what they saw or what they had or what they were exposed to that they see that things could go differently that history doesn't have to repeat itself and then there are folks who feel like they don't have that option that that choice isn't available to them that history does just have to repeat itself and of course there's a million reasons within that individual why that may be but um but that's a, something that you see a lot is that when people can click into that i don't have to turn out the way my parents did or i don't have to go the way that my brother or sister did that it can be very empowering and i think we don't hear that enough that we hear a lot about the cycle of this and the cycle of that right. um, but frankly most of the evidence with those studies is pretty thin and that i think we need to hear more about the fact that what happens after childhood adversity is highly variable and you know in many ways up to the individual yeah yeah um, okay, so Meg, um, tell us about, um, just on the topic that you were actually talking about, are there certain ingredients that we as parents can kind of try to surface or certain sort of lessons that we can teach our children to help them be resilient? Yeah, so, um, so like I said a minute ago, we've been studying resilience for, you know, three, four decades looking for the key, the one ingredient. And very fortunately, the ants, there is no one. That's actually good news because then you would have habits or you would have have nots, right? You either have it or you don't. Um, so really what it is, is helping kids tap into whatever the strengths are that they have. So again, sort of like superheroes, different superheroes have different strengths. You know, some have x-ray vision and some have like the invisible plane. I don't know. But, why some cannot. Right, exactly. So, um, so with different kids, so what they've done after all this research, they looked for the short list of what helps people be resilient. Turns out the list is super long, so I won't read the whole thing, but um, it's everything from I do well in school or I have a talent or a hobby that you know, kind of allows me to focus on other things or attract the attention of people who care or could help me advance in life. Sometimes it's just being a, you know, savvy problem solver or, or the strength of I have good people in my community and I don't have to do this all on my own, that that's a road to resilience. Um, having um, a sibling who cares is an important, can be an important um, factor. Um, having uh, some sort of religion or, you know, spirituality to lean upon. So there, there are so many different strengths. It's really more of a matter of what are the strengths that my child has? Like, how can I help this person 
tap into what they've got. So uh, I talk about a fair number of famous people in the book and the book is not about famous people, but I talk yeah. about them because we all know their stories. Sure, yeah. So, you know, if you look at someone like Oprah Winfrey, she obviously, she's a huge extrovert. She's got a great personality, tons of emotional intelligence. And that was what allowed her to sort of get out in the world and make her way and be taken into other people's homes and create opportunities for herself. But then there will be other, another person and what their strength was, was doing well in school. And you know what? I went and every single day, I forgot about what was going on in my house and I went to school and I did well. And I, I focused on that. Right. And then eventually I went to college and went from there. So you know, I think it's about helping kids use the strengths that they have, that this is really, this is going to be a battle. It's going to be a struggle. And you figure out what do they have to, to fight with? What do they have to fight back with? And it's almost always better if they're not doing that alone. Um, but sometimes they are. Yeah, yeah, makes sense, makes sense. Um, and those are all really, really good things to actually uh, take away because actually they, I resonate with a lot of those in terms of, uh, you know, how do you create some strength for people around you? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So uh, Meg, tell us about um, any challenges or obstacles you kind of faced while you were writing this book or, um, uh, you know, just sort of along your journey. Um, you know, this book in a way was, I don't to say it was easy to write would not be accurate because <laughs> you've, you've read it. It's not a, it's not a beach read. I mean, it's not a, it's not fluff. It's, yeah. it's, um, there's a lot of research. There's a lot of um, very detailed stories. And I think what I, what, but I knew exactly what I wanted to accomplish. And so it was easy and that I went into it knowing what I wanted to do. And um even though it was a big project to take on. I think the biggest obstacle was feeling like I wanted to be sure that I did justice to the, the topic of adversity um, while also helping people see the way forward with resilience. That if you spend too much time just on the adversities, people read it and they think, well, I resonate with this, but I'm, ugh, you know, is this what I'm learning that because of my childhood that I'm, I'm doomed, that I'm done for, that my life is, is sad and difficult and may never get better. Um, yet, if you go too quickly to the resilience piece, to the how people get through it or how it could be better one day or the sort of the silver lining stuff, then you lose, you lose the reader who says, well, that sounds easy or yeah. that sounds nice, but that's not what it's been like for me. So it was really... Um, trying to do justice to both sides of to say I see and I know how difficult these problems are yet if I end the conversation there you haven't given anyone not just hope but you haven't helped them tap into not just what's gone wrong but what they've managed to do right right and what could still go right and I think we owe it to people to get the conversation to that point too right Right. So as a, as a parent, um, you know, is there, is there one feeling that, uh, that you have that you would rather not feel? Oh gosh, that's a great question. No one's ever asked me that. So this is going to take me a second. <laughs> uh, 
You know, I think what I, what I'll tell you what, what came up for me, and then I'll tell you what happens when that comes up for me. I think it's probably the same. I'm guessing it never thought about it before, but I'm guessing it's the feeling that comes up for a lot of the parents who are listening or just who are living. Um, Just that feeling of, if you you just uh, hold the cord, we may, we may get rid of some of that. Okay. Um, the, the feeling that I had was, and this is really ironic considering that I wrote this book, is just that gut reaction of, oh no, I don't want my kids to struggle, even though I don't actually believe that. So what, what's interesting is that there's that gut reaction of, oh no, I don't want this to go wrong for my kids. But as a psychologist, as someone who wrote Supernormal, as someone who wrote The Defining Decade, I truly don't want them to have a life where they never struggle because they won't be able, well, A, that's never going to be possible. Right. The slings and arrows are coming and I know that they'll be more equipped and more capable and more confident if they do struggle along the way. But what's interesting is that gut reaction of, oh no, this is, this is going poorly for my kid. Um, yeah, makes sense. You know, we, we don't, we don't, we don't want our kids to get hurt anyway. Right. We don't yet. Um, I am the first one to say, um, you know, there's the book blessing of a skinned knee or the blessing of the B minus. I mean, I, I subscribe to that completely that I don't want my kids to have problem free lives because that's going to run out at some point and then they won't be, they won't have the experience to draw on when something, you know, goes on when I'm not around to worry about it. Yeah, no, it makes sense. And, you know, I, I, did, a, I did a podcast with, um, uh, I think, with Jessica Lee, who wrote Gift of Failure, which is, you know, okay. mm-hmm. we can actually give our kids. Yeah, so I'm, I'm uh, I, so it's, but it's funny that when you ask me what feeling comes up that I don't like, I, that one. Yeah, yeah, uh, that's interesting. So tell me about, you know, uh, obviously you've written a couple of books, you're, you're, you're quite successful in some of the things that you're actually doing. Any sort of personal transformations along the way that are um, that are deeper and have changed kind of the way you think? Um, I mean, this is maybe from a career perspective, um, and I guess none of this will be new as much as it is affirming to what people have said before, is that I have been you know, in my adulthood, my life has gone better. My career has gone better when I could be authentic and just focus on what I was interested in doing and following that. So, I mean, it started, you know, way back when, when I decided to be a psychologist and, you know, my family was apoplectic and said, oh my gosh, you know, psychologists, they never make any money. It's so frustrating. Why would you do that? Of all the things you could have been, why would you be that? And I decided to do that because I loved psychology in college, loved it, made A's in it without even trying very hard. And I I was working hard, but it didn't feel like work because I truly loved it. And so I said, okay, I'm going to go that way. And that's what I'm going to do. And um, ended up getting a PhD at Berkeley, which was a great place to be. And at the time, there was no, um, there was no emphasis on 
20 somethings or young adults as a, a group um, that was just kind of an overlooked, I mean, everybody was sort of talking about young adulthood or 20 somethings, but yeah. not in a serious way. And I had so many 20 something clients, I felt like this is important and no one's talking about this. And this is a unique developmental moment. Someone needs to do this. And there was no template. It wasn't out there, but it was something I was good at and I felt strongly about. And I said, okay, I'm going to do that. I'm going to write a book about it. Yeah. You know, ended up kind of opening up. I mean, now if you go to the bookstore at Barnes and Noble, if you know anybody even goes to a bookstore anymore, you know, there's like a whole little section on, you know, 20 somethings in the bookstore now, right. um, partly because I think now we really see that as a unique developmental moment that deserves its own conversation. Um, and then, you know, similarly with, with Supernormal. So I think for me, it's just been paying attention to what's moves me and what I feel like the world needs or, you know, there's an unmet need in the world and saying, I'm going to do that. And then when I work in that space, it, it tends to go well and I enjoy it. So I, maybe as I was saying earlier, Supernormal was not an easy book to write, but I, I loved writing it because I, I, you know, I knew it was important. Yeah. So on that note, what's your, what's your hope for your audience? Um, for my audience on this particular podcast. Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess you're, you're, you're focused on parents and, and maybe 20 somethings, right? Right, right. What, what would you love? For got it. Got it. Got it. Yes. Um, I think back to the quote I mentioned earlier is for people to feel understood, um, and to feel like I'm taking their problems seriously, that there's someone out there who's taking their problems seriously and to feel like through probably my books, because that's what's out there the most, that they've found a way forward um, and feel more equipped, more optimistic, more able to get the lives they want um, yeah. through the work. Yeah, that's wonderful. Uh, so Meg, tell um, maybe you can tell us kind of where the audience can um, get to you or your books. Yeah, so they should be everywhere or somebody's not doing their job, I guess. So, uh, so they're uh, super normal is one and the defining decade is the other. Um, and they're everywhere, Barnes and Noble, Books a Million, Indie Books, uh, Amazon, Apple, Walmart. I mean, they should be everywhere. So um, and you have so a website, right? What's your website? I have a website, megj.com. Megj.com. Great. Sounds good. Um, okay, well, Meg, thank you so much. It's been uh, great uh, chatting with you, and I'm uh, really glad that you were here today. Me as well. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen. We would really appreciate if you can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or send us any feedback to reachingroots at wishslate.com. Also, download the Wishslate app to help organize wish lists for your family and change the way you gift. You can download this from www.wishslate.com slash download.